I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right. Super special guest, Larry Todd. Larry, tell everybody what you do. Um, well, I'm trained as an anthropologist, archaeologist, uh, but actually what I do more than that is something called taphonomy which is the study of what happens to dead things. So um, my real passion when I started archaeology was looking at bison kill sites. And to study a bison kill site, you can't just look at the patterns you see when you excavate it and say, well, people did this and people did that and people did the other. You've got to look at what the carnivores did after the people left the site and what the decay of, of the bones did to dispersal of things and what um, the rate of deposition does to what bones are preserved. And looking at all those sorts of things that happen after the death of an animal until it enters the laboratory is the field of taphonomy. So when, you say, of, when you say kill sites, you mean places where where ancient people killed? Large groups of animals. I, I specialized mostly in big bison kill sites, but I also did a couple mammoth sites and did sites where people suspected that horses had been killed and a variety of sorts of things. I was sort of a um, taphonomist for hire. Can you break down the word taphonomy? It's it's from the Greek, and um, taph is death, and onomy is study of. So a word that's similar that you may have heard is epitaph, the words that are on a tombstone. Yeah. So it's um, the original definition was the study of death and burial. Do you got your epitaph figured out yet? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, Do you? No, man, I don't have one yet. 
I've McGuane, never, I've McGuane never had thought one. about it. No, remember McGuane? I didn't think of it either, but McGuane said he already knows what he wants uh-huh. written on his thing. Well, it'd make a good t-shirt too, once you got it you figured out. just wear it, it on your shirt and then yeah. have him put it on your tombstone. Yeah. Yeah. So taphonomy. Ta- am I saying it right? Yeah, taphonomy. Yeah. yeah. So what's a large kill site? Like what, at what point do you get, what, at what point do you get interested? Oh, I get interested um, with a single animal, but uh, the ones that you, you focus on the most because- there's the highest information potential are ones that have anywhere from 10 to I've worked on sites where there's close to 800 to 1,000 animals no. in a single sort of Oh, like cliff jumps? Um, cliff jump, well, one of the sites that I spent about 11 years on is a site in on the Nebraska National Forest called the Hudson Mang site. Okay. And there's probably 800 bison there from the little bit we saw of it. And one of the interesting questions there, and on many of the early sites, the paleo- And they got killed when? About 10,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, and one of the interesting questions is how they died and whether it was a kill. And there's a whole series of things like that that go into the taphonomy. Of step one is you find a bunch of bones and is it a natural death or is it a kill site? Um, but one of the f- interesting things about, you know, your question about jumping over a cliff is many of the early sites, the earliest sites in North America, the ones from about 13,000 till about 8,000, aren't associated with jumps. Um, like they hadn't started that they, strategy maybe. They hadn't started it or maybe they didn't need it. Okay. Um, I think that um, probably the early peoples in the America were such specialists in bison behavior that they probably made our PhDs in zoology and ecology seem like kindergartners of knowing what bison are going to do given any given situation, the the cloud cover, the bugs, the wind direction, when it's last rained, they could probably use the bison behavior to help get them into a place where they could kill them regardless of whether there was a jump there. And, it's, and um, So some of them are in big open areas with no cliffs, no arroyo, um, no obvious sort of containment. And they probably at that time um, – they're probably encountering groups that haven't had a lot of human pressure, perhaps. Yeah, um, very definitely. They they probably, they're, the animals that they were preying upon would have been used to the way wolves would hunt them or other social predators were. And all of a sudden you have this different sort of social predator shows up on the scene. And um, something we might talk about a little further on is one of the things I'm really worrying about now is thinking about how that animal memory of kill events feeds into how you can hunt in a region and how often you can work through uh, in mountain areas where I'm working now, how often you can effectively run a mountain sheep trap. Do you have to wait till the next generation of mountain sheep shows up or is there going to be somebody there in the herd that's going to, you know, don't go up that ridge, you know, if these sort of conditions. Got you. Yeah. Like you had to wait till their memory faded before you came back. Which is, um, as an anthropologist, it's both sort of interesting and almost heretical to talk about that because if you're talking about memory and information being tra- passed down from and stored in the group from one generation to the next, you're talking about what we usually classify as culture. Yeah. And, and we usually, when we talk culture, um, we usually say that's ours. You know, humans are defined by culture and everybody else, na 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 na, doesn't have it. And so I'm trying to really think about in terms of hunting and landscapes of multiple cultures colliding, human cultures versus the game animal cultures of, yeah. of information. Have you spent much time talking to um, uh, Kaufman? 
the 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 migration researcher uh, a little bit. I'm Wyoming. working. I'm working more with Arthur Middleton, who uh, did the elk migration stuff yep. from Cody into the Yellowstone. Because what you get into there is that what's interesting about their work with tracking collars on modern animals is you see um, what like what level of exposure uh, like a newborn has like when you have a, a fawn or a calf hit the ground and it is taken somewhere by its mother, uh-huh. its ability to retain that information after the death of the mother. Right. And like like how, how well it can retrace routes, and, and uh-huh. it's, it's pretty stunning, man. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, I'm spending next week in Berkeley with Middleton okay. to talk about how we can better integrate uh, my archaeological data from the high elevations. I'm working in some of the same areas that he has the elk GPS uh, color data on. Um, in terms of answering questions that he's interested in, like um, what's the long-term fidelity of these migration corridors? How long do they go back in, in time? Yeah. And um, I'm interested in whether the corridors that the elk are using today, um, my, my expectation is they're using sort of the least cost path across the landscape um, that may have been used by elk we know it's used by elk, but it may have been used by bison that are going into high country uh, in the past, uh, mountain sheep, and humans. So the the elk migration corridors may be giving us a clue to what the past archaeology uh, or the past human landscape of the high elevations was. I got you. And the archaeology can also help um, the the wildlife people uh, potentially see how long those corridors have been there. Yeah. Let me let me do this for a minute just to help people get up to speed. Uh, you, you started talking about the Meng site. Uh-huh. You can talk about that one or, or pick um, sort of your favorite site that you can think of, like a big kill site uh-huh. from from the from a very old big kill site, and lay out what the body of evidence is that you wind up working with to ascertain what happened there. Okay, because I would just I would automatically think like, wouldn't it just be that you look for spear points? And if there's spear points, then it must have been people killing them. That's, like, explain how it gets more complicated. That was sort of the assumption. I probably will stick with Hudson Mang. But okay, yeah, great, some, great. Some recent sites in the news, like there's a big mammoth site down in Mexico. That it's would be on my list of things. On. I got to um, ask you about that. Okay. Um, so the up till about 1970 or late 1960s, when people approached – uh, the big kill sites, the uh, starting with Folsom right on up through the others, the sites themselves were pretty much thought of as being quarries uh, that you'd extract the bones from for exhibit and then you'd also extract the, the, the points from. But they didn't really do a lot of work to kind of try and tie the two together. Yeah, like they just come in and sift all the dirt out yeah. and look for big or – wa- or in Folsom, they wash it away with water, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, some uh, – around 19 – in the late 1960s, a researcher down in Colorado uh, named Joe Ben Wheat excavated a site called the Olson Chubbuck site. I've heard and, of that one. And uh, what he did there that was sort of remarkable is he started mapping and recording every bone in the site, sort of like you'd have a jigsaw puzzle. And he came up with the idea and he tried to do the analysis that the site itself, the bone bed itself is a key artifact. That in looking at the distribution of where the cows are and the calves are and which uh, oh. how the carcasses are cut up and dispersed and that sort of stuff can give you a tremendous amount of information. So and then uh, several years after that, um, George Frizen from Wyoming followed up with a site called the Casper site, 
where he kind of took that perspective into account as well of the site as an artifact and then tried to plug in bison paleoecology of how they lived on the landscape and what had happened after it. Ex- explain uh, your term, whether the site is an artifact. Uh, okay. Um, we all, when we think of, you, you talked about, you find the points with the bones. We all know that a, a nice piece of stone that's been. No, I mean just crap- the definition of an artifact. Oh, an artifact, humanly produced, humanly created. Yeah. Like if you could pick up, like if you pick up a bone and it has the, cut mark, you pick up an ancient bone, yeah. which is a bone. The minute you, it has cut marks on it, it's an artifact. When, and the idea of the bone bed as artifact is that just like the individual flake scars on a flake piece of stone have to be looked at altogether to understand it. You don't just have that individual bone with a cut mark on it, but you need to know how it's positioned next to this one and that one and where it is um, within the bone bed. And that you need to look at the whole picture rather than the individual pieces. So the site, the bone bed, that pile of dead animals um, could be conceived of as an artifact. Yeah, you know, a, a thing we talked about um that we talked with uh, uh, David Meltzer once, uh-huh. and we were talking about the Folsom site. An interesting thing, like like you're getting at with the Folsom site, is uh, I think the rib slabs are not there, uh-huh. which suggests that when they butchered those things, whatever twelve thousand years ago, when they butchered them, they hauled out the ribs on the bone, uh-huh, because it's that- not in the bone bed. So and that's it's like the, they're the absence of something is. The absence of something becomes interesting. Uh-huh. They, well, that's and that's where you start looking at b- both what's there and what's missing. Mm-hmm. So we're up to the 1960s and that was sort of the – and 70s. That was a perspective of um, these bone beds are artifacts. And then this taphonomy stuff sort of reared its ugly head. And ta- one of the things that taphonomy does is it's sort of the – wait a minute. Let's take another look at this science. Uh, it sort of often points out what you don't know and why you don't know it rather than as the way, way we normally think of science as accumulating information. Yep. Uh, taphonomic analyses more often than not leaves you with, well, we're not sure about that. We don't know that or the other. So go back to that bone bed as an artifact. Everything in it is telling you something about human behavior. Yep. And so the, if a bone's missing, people took it away. If your carcasses are completely disarticulated, people cut them into little butcher units and deposited them there. Like quartering if, it out. Yeah. yeah. And if bones were broken, human broke humans broke them to get out the marrow. So from the bone bed as artifact perspective, everything there was telling you about human behavior to give you a really rich picture of what was going on there. And where the taphonomy comes in is going, now, wait a minute. We start looking at some of these bones and they've got wolf tooth marks on them. Uh, Don't you suppose the wolves were taking away some of the bones as well when they were coming in after the humans were there? You start looking at other bones and yeah, they're broken, but they're broken with uh, the center part pushed down into the ground as if something had stepped on it later. So you can't just look at the frequency of bone breakage and say um, humans broke every bone. Uh, Just because a carcass is not completely all together in a skeleton doesn't mean that humans had taken it apart into those individual parts. We've all walked across a landscape and seen dead things. And more often than not, they're not all completely together. Oh, yeah. They, you they get, get like, scattered. Yeah. You're like, oh, there's the, a there's a shin bone. And yeah. There's and a over femur. There's something else. And and I wonder where the skull is. Yeah. You never find yeah, You never find them. But yeah. for a while, when we were doing archaeology, we sort of forgot about that. We'd look at a site as if any of those processes happened or stopped happening just as soon as humans left away and it was frozen in time. 
And so the taphonomic study tries to bring all those other factors into account of how many of the bones do have the carnivore tooth marks, uh, what percentage of them have cut marks relative to tooth marks, what breakage appears to have happened um, paramortem soon, soon after death as opposed to long after death. Where So you can maybe separate out um, the human breakage from the trampling breakage from the dry bone breakage later. Um, scattering, one of the studies I spent, did my doctoral dissertation work on is I spent a lot of time looking at how recently dead cows would get dispersed across the landscape and measuring the distance from, for example, a hip to where the femur went and how that changed and starting to look and at Because you can do it over a known time span. You can do, and you can do it with a known individual. Yeah. And then when you go to an archaeological site, you can start measuring the bones and start begin recognizing the bones of individual animals and see how they get dispersed and see if the dispersal patterns you see within the bone beds differs from what you see naturally. So a part of what taphonomy does is tries to establish some of those natural patterns uh, without assuming that every, again, one of the strange things that archaeologists do is we tend to have this idea that humans create patterns in the world mm -hmm. and everything else creates chaos and randomness. And we all know by looking at, for example, the way streams move cobbles around, uh, they sort them by sizes, they sort them by shapes. We're not, we're just one of many pattern creating creatures. Yeah. So you can't use as your standard basic methodology of if you see a pattern, we did it. Yeah. And so taphonomy tries to understand all those other sorts of patterns that can go into it. And as I mentioned before, that sort of gets you into that hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you asked me to talk about a specific site and the site um, the, that I said I spent 11 years on, the Hudson Mang Bison Kill Site. It was called the Hudson Mang Bison Kill Site when we got there. Uh, and there's close to 800 animals. Uh, you're not going to tell me this buzzkill story, right? Um, Did it want to be not a kill site? Yeah. Well, we don't know. Um, okay. my, my bottom line now <laughs> is after you do the taphonomic analysis, you get to the well, it could be a kill site, um, but there's a lot of things that don't necessarily mean there's some points there. Um, does that mean that the people killed the animals? There's 23 points in 800 animals. So sort of as a, and that doesn't fit the pattern we see if- uh, oh, Okay, these 800 animals are stretched out of what size patch of ground? They're, oh, in, in size of this room, you know, um, 30 by 20 feet, there's probably- oh. Like no, no, they're over a huge area, but in the size of this room, there could be the remains of 15 to 20 animals. It's just a solid sea of bone, bone on bone on. So they cover, oh, maybe 70 meters by 50 meters. So a little less than the size of a square football field. And, and the deaths were spread out over how much time? Looks like almost instantaneously. You can look at, what? You, you can assess time of death by looking at tooth eruption and wear patterns. And so if there's a um, mass kill, a mass death, um, there's going to be a snapshot of the age structure of the population. And since um, bison are a birth pulse species, they have most of their calves within about a two-week period in the spring. Yeah. You, and the biological schedule of when the teeth erupt and when they start wearing from chewing on grass is, is predictable. You can look at the jaws of the calves in a site like that and tell how old they were at the time I they died. You. So, um, and you get H all these calves that all have the same Hudson tooth Mang, eruption. Yeah. yeah. yeah Hudson Mang uh, looks like they were like four months old. Um, so sort of middle of the summer, late summer. 
So, and then, and then, you know, in the age structure, then you'll have a gap in the age structure and then you'll have animals that are a year and four months old and two years and four months old. And when you get that nice, discrete, um, sets of age structures, that tells you you've got a catastrophic, a mass death of all those animals dying at once. And the 26 points, how... Twenty some, uh, I forget the exact. How like uh, how directly affiliated are they with the bones? Stuck uh, into them? No, some are um, some are associated in the same stratigraphic level as the bone. Some are slightly above it. Some are slightly below it. Um, there's one point that was reported to have been stuck into a bone. But when we went back through the collections, the the point and the bone that's associated with have different catalog numbers and say they're from different parts of the site. And like someone the, pulled it out? Well, or that somewhere in the recording process, uh, it wasn't recorded in a way that we can today go back to it and say, yeah, we're a hundred percent sure gotcha. that bone was stuck in that. So when we record a bone on a site like that, and like I said, there's um, 200 and some bones in the skeleton of a bison and 800 bison. Again, you can sort of do the work and imagine how many bones might be there. When we recorded site today um, with this taphonomic perspective on the, in, in mind, before we remove it from the ground, we record about 29 separate observations on each individual bone that goes into a massive data set. So you don't have that, that problem down the line of which bone was where. It's like um, digging a site like a bone bed is like taking apart a hugely complex jigsaw puzzle that you're wanting to be able to tell somebody in the future how to put it back together exactly like it was. So you don't just say there's blue pieces over here and red pieces over there. Every piece of that puzzle has an inventory number and its exact location is, is pinpointed. Yeah. So that, and that's the way you, you think of excavating a site. So at Hudson Mang, we went in, I was thrilled to go into being able to dig the largest known Paleo-Indian bison kill site in North America. And one of the things that the original researchers had noted were that there were no skulls there, that they'd been taken somewhere else. 800 that, skulls gone. 800 skulls gone, um, which led to an interpretation of there must have been some sort of ceremonial thing, you know, well, because you know we what? know. The, here, I, I, got to add this to the list <laughs> yeah. what I want to talk about because we laugh about this all the time. Yeah. Everything they can't understand becomes ceremonial. Uh-huh. Exactly. That's, that's in there with, um, only humans create patterns. And if we don't see a pattern that we recognize, it must be a ceremony there. It's a corollary to that. It's like everything like, you know, there's three skulls lined up. Uh-huh. Must've been ceremonial. It's like, uh, I, I don't well, know. Sometimes, all, sometimes I, we'll get to two. Yeah. I line all <laughs> kinds of shit up. That isn't ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> you see my kids do stuff. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> they, they, they're not. They, they line everything up. Uh -huh. They're Halloween candy. Uh -huh. is, oh, yeah. is it ceremonial? Yeah. I don't know. It's just lining shit up. <laughs> so that was one of the interpretations of you know the the skulls were missing. As a matter of fact, when I first started working where, there with the Forest Service, they had this idea to kind of attract funding and attract attention to call it the Lost Skull Learning Center. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But okay. Keep going. Cause I keep like interjecting. Oh no, that's fine. The, here's the problem in talking to me. The problem with you talking to me is I know like I've heard of all this stuff, but I don't really know what goes on. The behind the scenes story. No, I'm like, yeah, like I know the version <laughs> uh -huh. that it was like, that they slaughtered 800 of them in a giant pile. Yep. I didn't know that then later that story maybe became more complicated. So, uh, so we got, um, we got missing skulls. The other argument that was used early on was that, um, all the animals were completely disarticulated, cut into bits and pieces. Um, the other argument is 
even though there wasn't one there now, there'd been a cliff there in the past that's been filled with sediment. Oh, the sinkhole. Well, it's, it's a, it's an actual cliff. There's other sites okay. that are in sinkholes. And so you've got a cliff on one side and then about 70 meters away, or potential cliff area, about 70 meters away, you've got this pile of bones. Okay. And so they're saying, well, the animals went over a cliff, they cut them apart, they drugged these bones over here for the secondary processing. So that's what I thought was going on there when we started recording the site. And one of the first things we noted is when we got down into the bone bed, there weren't complete skulls, sure enough, but there were lots of maxillary tooth rows, upper tooth rows. There were lots of the petrous portion, the big hard portion at the, in the inside of the head. There was uh, the occipitals, the base of the skull. There's lots of portions of skulls, but no complete skulls. Really? And then you start thinking Can I tell about you a quick story? It. Yeah. Uh, one time we killed a, me and my brother killed an elk and we quartered it out and uh, it was a cow uh-huh. and left the head laying there. And uh-huh. a week later, we went back to see what the grizzlies did to it. Guess what was left? Not they start right at the nose <laughs> and work their way back. It was so that they, yeah. ball of like yeah. that ball of right bone. Of the, yeah, that's yeah, funny. Right yeah, but go on. But one of the other because <laughs> you're now you're peaking my interest. <laughs> so um, one of the things we record is if you imagine a bone laying on the ground and it's not laying completely flat. Well, let's say we've got a bone laying on the ground and it's flat. I talked about those 29 attributes we record on each bone, and one of them record, we record is the degree of weathering. You know, when you first expose a bone after an animal dies, it's nice and clean and solid surface and all that sort of stuff. Got you go it. back and look at that bone two years later, and it's starting to crack, and the pieces of it are starting to chip yeah, up. And there's becomes porous, yeah and, yeah, and and linear fractures through it and all that. Yeah, yeah. We've developed uh, uh, coding systems to describe that weathering. And so we record the like weather. degrees of weathering. Yeah, degrees yeah. of weathering. Okay. Uh, one of the sets of attributes we record are the weathering on the top surface of the bone and the weathering on the bottom surface of the bone. Got you. With the idea being if the bone's laying there on the ground surface and not being moved, there's a good chance that it's going to be weathered more intensively on the top and the bottom. Mm-hmm. Like, we, a, like a year old drop antler. Yeah. You'll be you like, oh, it it's bleached. And, and you they flip it and be like, it oh, it's brown. Exactly. Yeah. And then you know it's like, it's been there, but it hasn't been there uh-huh. like that long. So imagine yeah. that yeah. going on in yeah. this pile of 800 bison and you're starting to get some sand and sediments blowing in. Yeah. It's going to start covering up the bases of some of those bones and they're going to start kept in place. They're sort of um, not glued down, but they're held in place by the sediments. And it's not blowing in in one huge 1930s dust storm. You know, it's accumulating little bit by a little bit by a little bit by a little bit that it may take 15, 20 years for a foot of sediment to build up. Yeah. Think of how big a bison skull is. It'll stand, you know, a foot and a half from the teeth up to the top of it above the ground surface. So while many bones of the skeleton can be completely buried within a few years, there's still going to be the tops of those skulls sticking up above the ground, continuing to weather, continuing to be trampled on, continuing to be broken into bits and pieces. So unless you have very rapid sedimentation across a site, you're not going to find the skulls. Yeah, I got you. So, um, so that came into play. And then we start. Yeah, the stuff coming by and gnawing on them. Yeah. Or the next herd of bison that runs across that area, trampling on it. Um, all those sorts of things can reduce the skulls to lots of not the sort of hang on your wall quality skulls, but they're still there. Yeah. They're, they're, um, they're bits and pieces. So that sort of took 
the law school learning center out of the category of being <laughs> not just silly, but maybe wrong. The, maybe the eroded school <laughs> learning center. Right? Yeah, the the we got that one wrong learning center, which is what <laughs> learning's all about, isn't it? Um, then we started looking at things like, um, as I said, we record each individual bone and you start doing measurements of the articular surfaces, and you can match those to the other bones they go to. And so, rather than saying these animals have all been brought from point A to point B as little discrete groups. It looks like each carcass is kind of scattered within a couple meter area. You know, it's what happens if you kind of be there and fall apart and get scattered. It's not everything is randomly dispersed and here and there. The carcasses are in the point where the, unless people were dragging complete bison carcasses across the landscape for 70 meters, they're in the position where they died. Well, I got to pause you for a minute. Now that you're deconstructing like the initial hypothesis, uh -huh. what like I understand like how did someone think like what size group of individuals would they postulate would have even been capable of butchering eight hundred bison? Eight hundred bison in the mid to late summer. I mean, so isn't, that, isn't that sort of the operating idea that we're talking about groups of individuals that might have been ten to thirty individuals roaming around? Yeah, to the 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 labor force to butcher that many animals as completely as they were argued to be butchered would be, boy, it, you know, we could call out half the town of Bozeman for a weekend and maybe get it done. It'd but, be, yeah, six to 10 people per animal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then it, we're talking about and they're not just, in the summertime, right? They're not just stripping the meat off. The argument was they were um, then cutting them into segments. They were moving them across the landscape. If they had just brought a hunter or a butcher over, that would have been like, bullshit, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was summertime, right? Uh, well, that's, yeah, what's the tooth eruption and where? So, so stuff they rots. were going to be going bad quick. Bad. I mean, yeah. it's not like you're going to be and, like, oh, we'll take were, a couple months and butcher and, these. Um, you talked about looking at the grizzly gnawing on the skull. Imagine what's going to happen to the grizzlies and the wolves and everybody else there when you've got 800 dead it's animals. It's going to be, whoa. It'd be that's like gonna, when a whale washes up on the beach yeah. in Alaska, you know, and they realize they got like 13 polar bears uh, on it, right? So it's going to be uh, a dangerous place to be if you're you're a hunter and gatherer family. You're not going to wait around there. So there are all sorts of things. And then eventually uh, we got in the big equipment, the heavy equipment, and excavated some big trenches back to where the cliff was supposedly. Because if, you know, again, you're always trying to evaluate the models of, okay, it's not looking like a jump over a cliff, but let's go to the base of the cliff and see what's going on there. Yeah. And what we found is, yeah, there's a bedrock um, uh, cliff there, but you can follow the the buried soils um, from where the bone bed is back towards the cliff. And as they approach the cliff, they form a gentle surface. That cliff was already buried at the time the animals died. Got you. And just by looking at the, the yeah, like, you, like you follow, follow like the sediment, whatever the, the sediment lines. You're, you're reconstructing what the old land surface looked like. Yeah. So then for a while, um, the crew would joke about things of, well, maybe it isn't a bison jump. Maybe it's a bison stumble. They were running down the hill. And or what about did, uh, they got burned up? That's, um, that's, we don't see, um, and that's, we, and we talk about taphonomy and the things taphonomists get excited about is research opportunities like, boy, a grass fire has killed a cow. Let's go look at it to see what happens oh, to yeah, you know, what yeah. parts of the skeleton, how badly they get burned. Um, we don't see any of that kind of burning in the bone bed itself. And remind me to talk about burning in the bone bed in a minute. And they couldn't have got stuck in the mud. Nope. Uh, there's not, you know, if you get stuck in the, stuck in the mud, we've got some sites like that and you find things like the feet and the toes and the limbs down in the mud. 
Uh, yeah, because they so, were so damn stuck they couldn't so, get out. Yeah, and there yeah. can be um, a foot and a half difference between the elevations of the feet and the rest of the body where it finally comes to life. These are smeared across one land surface. So Lightning strike couldn't do that. Could, maybe, if they're all, that's one of our suggestions is potentially if they're um, herded there together, you know, it, the one lightning strike could do it. What about when uh, tornadoes hit them? You're not in tornado country. Well, yeah, in, in Nebraska. We're in northwestern Nebraska. Okay. So tornadoes could be possible. And I don't know, there, there again, what things you wish for. Wouldn't it be fun to find a herd of cows that have been killed by a tornado? Can't be that hard. <laughs> well, I don't know whether it, I'm sure they get killed, but um, in that sort of number, they probably get killed one, two, three at a time. Do that? Does it aggregate them in the tornado or does it scatter them across the, the landscape? Don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you ask about fire um, and we don't see evidence of direct burning on the animals, but they're down below where this cliff was in sort of a swale next to a damp area where you might aggregate if a prairie fire is burning. And one of the things that happens in fires when they burn over areas like that is they'll often suck the oxygen out of low-lying areas. Okay. So they may have asphyxiated. So by the time we got done at Hudson Mang, the original excavator was really sort of irritated at us. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and we never said that it wasn't a kill site. Did he, and, uh, did he double down? Yep. He you know, did. I'm reading a book by, uh, I'm reading a book by an entomologist that's going to come on the show named Justin Schmidt. And he, he studies, uh, insect toxins. Uh-huh. But he has a, th early in his book, he has a thing he's pointing out like, uh, this is no offense to you. He says the reason all the great discoveries are made by young scientists it's because they don't give a shit about what everybody thinks. And then you come uh -huh. up with something, and then most of them then spend the rest of their life trying to defend their initial idea and encircle their initial idea because they're really reluctant to be that they were wrong. Uh-huh. And, and we, he's like, that, that's, that's like the job of science is to not fall in love with the idea in the first place. And to continually be trying to figure out how you could be wrong. And again, that's why I like the field of taphonomy because that's sort of its goal. You're always asking that, well, we don't understand all the things that create. And every site I've dug, um, you've got sort of your textbook, what you go about taphonomy on, but then you realize that it's in a slightly different situation where it is on the land surface. Um, you know, is it in shade? Is it in where a snowdrift forms? Is it in an area where we haven't studied those taphonomy? And you realize you need to go back to the modern world or come to the modern world and study those processes again to make sure that you understand them. Yeah. So you're continually in that cycle of, of saying, this is what we think we know, but then uh, yeah, but what about this? I think one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me was I was giving this sort of presentation years ago, uh, soon after I got married. And I had my wife, my arm around my new wife. And I said something to the crowd like, yeah, and I embrace ignorance. Um, that, didn't get, <laughs> that didn't go over very well. Because <laughs> the point is, you know, if you really want to learn something, step one is to say, yeah, I don't know that, or what are the alternatives? So in the Hudson Mang case, uh, we came away from it saying, yeah, these animals died, and there's indications that humans were in the area, uh, maybe soon after, maybe a little after. Uh, but whether it's a functional association, we can't say for sure, because mm -hmm. there's all these all these unexplained um, patterns that may not have anything to do with a kill event. So we took a perfectly good story 
and turned it into uh, who knows shrug. So let's say, but you which had, means there's it opens the door for new research. Yeah, I, I always well, um, yeah, like it's yeah. just as interesting. No, I, I always root for everything to be a kill site, <laughs> yeah. like a human kill site. Oh, I do because that's really that's fun. That's, yeah, what that's we're gonna, cool. Yeah, but it is inter- it does bring up like if not that. What? Then how does 800, how do like eight, uh-huh. like if you ever seen 800 or something in a field, it's a lot of big, that's a lot, it's of, a lot of big animals. But man. you look at, um, you know, go to the Museum of Rockies here. Um, there's big piles of dead dinosaurs in single bone beds. They don't always occur as one, two. There's sites where there's in the tens to twenties to 30 animals in the same place. Um, and they make a good, another good control to study if you can't in that case say, well, it's a human kill site, something there are processes that kill yeah. large groups of animals over and over again without having humans on the scene. So, what's your best guess? Like, let's—I know you guys don't like to do this in your business, but what's your like? Why are there twenty-six, twenty-seven, whatever? Like, why are those? Is it projectile points or scrapers they're, or they're projectile points? There's some scrapers. What are they there for? They could have, uh, if the animals died, humans could. You know, we're great scavengers as well as good hunters. Um, they also, it's by a spring. There's, and I said there were points both in the bones, below the bones, above the bones. Hell, they could have come there 20 years later and camp next to that spring where most of the bison were completely buried. Yeah. There's lots of ways you can get close associations in, in sediments across landscapes without being a. It could have just been a good hunting spot. Could have been Those a good hunting spot. Those weren't the only 800 animals oh, that yeah. ever walked through there. <laughs> in, right? in, yeah, uh, if I saw 800 or something, I'd probably come back and check it a year later <laughs> or, to see what um, was going on. <laughs> a lot of the plains, any place where there's a water source and there's a spring right there is going to be one of your hunting locations over and over and over again. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm sure you've been to the La Brea Tar Pits uh-huh. in LA. Yeah. Yeah, like there you have, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how many mammoths. I mean, like uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things. Dire wolves and that whole wall of dire wolves. Yeah, there's like, yeah, there's a wall of like 40 some dire wolf skulls uh-huh. that came out of that thing. But it was active. It was like collecting carcasses. Uh huh. Over time. Yeah. Over so much time that I remember seeing that, I remember like someone was postulating, like, there's, there's so many bones. Like, what was going on here? How could there be so many bones? And then someone said, like, one event in that vicinity, one event per decade would account for all of these bones. Uh-huh. Meaning a, a, a mammoth calf gets stuck in the tar. Yep. A saber tooth or some scavenger goes out to eat it, gets stuck in the tar. A few birds come down to scavenge, they get stuck in the tar. If that happens every decade... Over yeah. the whatever twenty thousand years the that, thing, yeah. that that thing is collecting things, when it's all said and done, you open it up and it looks like like it looks like Noah's oh Ark got dumped out inside there, uh-huh. you know. But it's just like a gradual. But but the eight hundred and one pile is so like intriguing. Yeah, it is, especially when you see like eight like if you were to look at eight hundred cattle out in a in a pasture, it's Boy, just a be, chunk yeah, of meat. It, that's going to be you know like I say almost a football field. Full of dead animals. Oh, man. The stench. Oh, yeah. The stench. But again, <laughs> um, and one of the things that I, I don't like to call bone piles like that kill sites, because even if we can demonstrate unambiguously that people killed them, if you really want to take full advantage, research advantage of them, you can also study them as um, other predator and scavenger food sources yeah. and how does those kill sites produced by humans feed into the ecology of the other scavengers in the environment. So you can really start trying to reconstruct a, an ecology of the area if you approach the site, not just by trying to learn about people. 
Yeah, you know, that's, that, that's the thing. When I was talking about La Brea, I forgot what the point I was going to get at. When you look through the Hudson Mang, did you find, were there all kinds of like wolf bones and, and bear bones mixed in, like no. stuff that had gotten killed while they were in there scavenging? No, but there are um, bones that have the tooth marks of the scavengers. Gotcha. So um, unlike La Brea, where if you're a scavenger that's trying to get that tasty, dead, smelly, rotting thing, and you fall into the, the tar and you get trapped yourself, here there wasn't that natural Nothing trap. You could come and eat your fill or... Uh, unless a, a grizzly came and you were a coyote and it killed you too. Yeah, so potentially within a few months, all the meat was gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we study, you, you know, talked about taphonomy and all the meat's gone. We study things like um, what happens through time as, as maggots consume carcasses and, and what parts can get, and you see things, well, one of the really fun patterns at Hudson Mang that we see, um, the kneecaps, the patellas yeah. are often in place at the lower end of the femur and the prox, you know, they're right there where they belong in the skeleton. How does that happen? Even though think, they're laying loose once everything rots away. Yeah. But think of if you've watched an animal rot, um, and I've spent more time doing that than it's probably healthy, um, the lower legs up through at least the knee, when the meat rots away, the hide often contracts and holds it down around it. Yeah. So. Seeing things like a kneecap in place on a carcass that you found in an archaeological site is probably a pretty good indicator that that animal wasn't skinned. Oh. So if it wasn't skinned, good, it's real yeah. hard to get to the meat. Because it could have been encased. It could have been settled into the dirt by the time it. Yeah, by the time that the, because if you're bury, bur, burying incrementally, that dried hide around, it's almost like armor. You know, it's, it's raw hide. It's tougher than hell. And it's going to hold that in place through a long period of time on, on some of those. Did you see that thing recently came out? This is over in Europe. I can't remember what country it was in. Where they found where guys had been stashing, uh, not even like shank, like the meat you use yeah, to make just, forearms. Yeah. Like the, 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 the lower legs, the, the metapodials and the, the. Stashing meta- those in a cave. Yeah. Or, or what they found was bones uh, that, in a cave. And they were wondering why they had to scrape the hide off of them to because get, yeah. instead of just stripping it off right. and someone postulated. That they dried and contracted. Just that they exactly, were throwing yeah. them in the cave. They, they always threw the, from the hoof to the knee uh-huh. yeah. in a cave, just a storage in there. And later they'd go and scrape it off. And, and you've got that Scrape the dry the, hide yeah. off yeah. to get the marrow the out. Because they're like, why else would they need to have scraped? Yeah. Knife that away when a, on a fresh animal. You just, you just peel, peel it. it back, yeah, yeah, like a like a banana. And that's if you'd read that study, it's kind of that's sort of taking taphonomy to an extreme. I don't think I'd do this. In that they were saying, boy, after a week or so, it starts to taste a little rank. They were actually yeah. tasting it themselves. The marrow starts to taste wheat rank e- after yeah, a week. Yeah. yeah. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly 
skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. One of the things that I had a student who was a biochemist a few years ago, and I had another student that was uh, an archaeologist, and we were watching carcasses rot, and he started questioning whether... If you've seen a, a big carcass rot during the middle of the summer and the maggots infest it, mm-hmm. they start piling out. You could collect quarts of maggots. Yeah. And he's saying, boy, I wonder if people would eat those maggots. You know, they're probably little fatty sort of. Oh, I'm sure they're good for you. Well, what what the, the student who was the biochemist did, we started collecting tissue samples from carcasses that died during the winter. Yeah. And found out that once the maggots infest it and throughout the winter, they or it would be okay to eat. When the maggots infest it, they start bringing in a bunch of other toxins. So the toxicity of the meat, once it's maggot infested, goes up tremendously. So probably the the maggot harvesters of the high plains wouldn't be a very, very good subsistence strategy. You know, it's a good taphonomy story for you. Okay. Uh, One time, my old man, um, when we were kids, my dad like hit a buck with his bow. Uh Uh-huh. 
and he killed it quick, but we never found it. We didn't realize it went, it ran into a cornfield and we later realized we must've stumbled it over 10 times without finding it, but he uh-huh. hit it like the arrow came down high, straight below, uh-huh. punctured the lung, but didn't make an exit hole. Uh-huh. So it runs off and we don't know how, but we missed it. I mean, we were like probably had to have walked over in a cornfield, uh-huh. but we would go check on it later. And one time we we're out there rabbit hunting and we go to check on, you know, dad's dead deer. Cause by the time we found it, it was rotten. Um, and there's a hole in its ribs. There's a hole in its side. And I peer down in that hole and there's a possum living in there. Oh, uh-huh. And actually Just, hauled him out by the tail. Uh-huh. But you can imagine if like that possum would have died. Uh-huh. Oh, um, yeah. And then it gets in case it looked like it was, was like it? a fetus. Uh-huh. You or know, or like it was a, a carnivorous deer. And this was the deer's last meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like no one would ever be like, oh, you know, it probably happens. A possum crawled in there and died. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this wouldn't be what came to mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a site in Colorado. I don't, you, hopefully I can explain it enough for you to know what I'm talking about. There's a site in Colorado where there's a lot of debate about whether it was a mammoth kill site or whether it was a spot that a few mammoths got washed up in a gravel bar uh-huh you know what i'm talking about north like i think it's like between denver and fort collins and there would somewhere. it be the dent site the one out by Greeley? maybe what, what's the dent site it's um one of the it's like one where people can't tell if they died or got killed yeah it was the site where that was first excavated with mammoths and points that were eventually called clovis points before the clovis site was and the association wasn't really established, and it was – so I, it, that might be the one, but um, – It was like the, the idea was – here, let me tell you the one last uh-huh. detail I remember. It was the, – the, 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 the people that were arguing that it was a kill site were arguing that somehow they were crossing a river. Uh-huh. And then going in – you know how you get like a little cut? You'll have a right. high bluff or yep. a high cut bank, but now you'll find like a little gap, like a little washout. Uh-huh. And animals will use that to, right. to get through the thing. It was the idea that they had somehow ambushed these mammoths coming up through that thing, and it was a good spot to get them. Mm-hmm. And so over time, maybe yeah. they'd killed a couple there. But then someone later was like, how, how do we know it's just not a place where carcasses would wash up on the beach or whatever? I'm know, not familiar. I wish I could do a better job of this. I'm not familiar with that one, but I am familiar with a site where that was a question. We, um, there's a site in Wyoming near Worland, Wyoming called the Colby Mammoth Site. I've heard of that. Where there's um, seven mammoths. And a lot of the bones occur in two piles. And when George Frizen originally excavated and reported on the site in Science Magazine, he hypothesized that those piles were areas where people killed mammoths or scavenged mammoths and then taken some of the bones and piled it over the meat that was left there, packed snow and stuff in to put it into sort of freezing um, storage to where you come back later. So he saw the the bone piles as being meat caches. And he published that in Science Magazine, you know, one of the the top scientific journals in the world as being this- um, Yeah, Science and Nature being the two top. One and two, yeah. 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 Uh, Published it in Science um, as being a Paleo-Indian meat cache. And one of the responses to it was, and they were in the bottom of an arroyo. Okay. Where the piles were. One of the responses to it by a fairly well-respected researcher was sort of, well, George, how do you know that those piles aren't just like what you're talking about, sort of the mammoth bone pile equivalent of driftwood? If you've got water moving down a winding arroyo, aren't bones going to accumulate in some areas in big piles? And one of the things that I really respect people like George Frizen um, 
about is rather than taking that defensive position that you were um, talking about before, his response to say, well, yeah, it could be. How do we figure that out? So he and I, um, the, the university, that was at the University of Wyoming and I was working on my PhD on collections there. Um, they had a mammoth skeleton or an elephant skeleton in their bone comparative collection. Okay. So we took the elephant skeleton out to one of the streams north of Laramie where we could dam up the stream, uh, lay the elephant bones in the bottom of the stream, uh, record their positions, um, release the water, record the current velocity, um, dam up the stream again, come back and measure which bones had moved and how far they moved. And we did that a number of times so that for each bone in the elephant skeleton, we could develop what we called a fluvial transport index. The same way a stream will deposit rocks. You get up toward the headwater, it's big rocks, you get down toward the mouth and And it's sand. Some bones, uh, light bones will float on water, other roll. So we developed this index of which bones would be most likely to be transported by flowing water. And then we went back to the Colby bone piles to see if they matched um, the, that sort of transport profile and they didn't. Did not. So, did no. not. So you can, you can take things like that of are these bones transported by water or, or not? And then you, your next step is how do we develop the methods to assess that? So and, what do they think happened? At, what, what's the leading theory about what happened at that site? I think uh, we're still into the, the uh, prison's original interpretation of meat cache is Probably most likely. It looks like one of them may have been where they did that, piled the stuff on and came back later and opened it up and got the meat back. Uh, Second one doesn't look like they ever did that. But again, if you're highly mobile people across a landscape, um, you're probably going to cache food wherever you can as a backup strategy of if things go wrong. And and even the the bone piles at sites during the winter where they don't necessarily put them in cache piles, you're going to know that next spring, if you're hungry, you can go back to that site where you killed the 50 bison in December and it might not be the tastiest stuff in the world, but there's a food source there. So, Yeah, like if you read – I always talk about uh, Stephenson, the Arctic uh explorer. Yeah. When he was traveling in the Canadian high Arctic and he was usually traveling with Inuit hunters, Uh they'd kill everything they ran across. Yeah. And put it in a pile. Because it's going to be there. Yeah, they'd put it in a pile and keep going because then they had in their head just where all this stuff was. And then I was just – we just interviewed another guest who just – finished the book about the Greeley Polar Expedition. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And yeah, every point. You just would go because like you're in your boat, you just go and drop stuff every yep. point. Because then if your boat sank, keep track you, of you'd create is, yep. a sort of like travel line yep. that you knew you could rely on. Uh, your breadcrumbs of, of yeah. safety. And yeah. they would and they, you'd leave caches and you'd, they'd always leave a note in there in a, in a container uh-huh. saying like, there's this at this point, this at this point. So the other people could find it and go about sort of recovering these surplus food sources that you didn't want to have with you because it was too vulnerable to have it yep. with you. One of my professors, um, Lewis Benford, spent a lot of time with the Nunimid Eskimo up by in the Brooks Range. And they talked, he talked about how you could talk to the old Nunamute, and they could tell you where things were cached pretty much all over Alaska. They may never have been there themselves, but you'd been there and you left something in this little dry spot. And when you came back to camp, you tell these things that like to us would seem like really boring stories. Like there's three sticks of wood in this cave down by that river. Or <laughs> yeah, <there's something>. yeah. <laughs> and so the greatest quote from that was, he said, one of the, one of his informants said, you know, Lou, Every dead Eskimo remembers something he didn't pick up and put in a cache when he should have. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, 
I, I mentioned to you before, I think it was before we started recording, I mentioned you, Mike Cons. Uh-huh. Yeah, he found a, he, you know, he when he was doing his work up in the North Slope of the Brooks Range, they were looking for, like, the goal would be that you'd find evidence of the very first Americans right. that would, you know, would have been in Western Alaska after crossing from Siberia. Um, but one of the things he found was an old cache of trapping equipment and Russian made a oh, Russian wow. made shotgun. Uh-huh. Very old. Uh-huh. You know, that someone had whatever, put it there and figured it'd come back and never got back to it. Yeah, you know, that that's um today we think of our lifestyles of we cash stuff in our closets. Um, you know, when we put our winter clothes up and get our summer clothes out. But if you're mobile across the landscape, there's a lot of stuff that you don't need all year long. You're going to be caching stuff for emergencies, but you're also going to be caching your summer gear when you're going into your winter range. And, you know, you don't pack everything. So that a lot of the archaeological record is not only stuff people lost intentionally, but stuff you've put up and may not get back to. And so those are really spectacular if you can find them. Have you ever found a mountain man cache like they used to make? No. I think there's been a few of those uh-huh. been recovered over the years, beaver hides. And- yeah, and you uh, you read accounts of like uh, where they dug their cash bits and put the stuff in it, and then they couldn't get back because they got killed or this. That'd be really fun to dig, yeah. Yeah, like they, they'd had a way they could sort of make a, like a safe storage place for, for uh, traps and dry yeah. beaver hides. Oh, yeah. it'd be cool to find yeah. one of those. Yeah. Uh, Can I get? What, a, I want to squeeze one in before we leave the Hun- Hudson Mang. Didn't you say in the beginning that one of the reasons they thought that it was a kill site was because of the the way that the animals were cut up and quartered? Yeah. And so now that you think that that wasn't the case, what's the explanation of that? Well, they um, dead things fall apart, and if you were to look down on the bone bed, it looks like just this jumble of scattered bones. But then, if you start, like I mentioned before, recording. Uh, dimensions of articular surfaces and stuff like this, the things that look like they're totally random are carcasses that have dispersed within a fairly small area. Yeah, the bones aren't completely articulated, uh, but if you were sitting on that side I of see. the table- I see, so there wasn't a very like organized- No. Like butchering- yeah. Shoulders if, over here, hams yeah, over there kind if, of thing. If all four of us were to die in this room and be left to decay- um, with natural dispersion. Yeah. Um, my femur might be over next to your cranium. That didn't mean yeah. a damn thing about Someone it. be like, someone cut them all up. <laughs> yeah. And, and they must, or, or you got whacked in the head with my femur <laughs> would be sort of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Hey, tell us about what's going on with the, I, I don't think it's been fully published yet, but a lot of people have been sending me the articles and I've been reading everything I can find about the. Uh, what might be, so you're, you're probably going to go down there and buzzkill the whole thing, the, but what might be mammoth traps north of Mexico yeah, the, City? Uh, Tultepec Mammoths, Tultepec 2 Mammoth Site. Um, this is a new thing, right? It's, um, yeah, they've been working there for about 10 months. Okay. It's the second mammoth that was discovered there in um, December of 2015. Uh, they were putting a water pipeline about two kilometers north of where this recent find was, and they found a nearly complete mammoth skeleton. No, 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 I'm talking about, yeah. ma- no, yeah. there's one they're digging up. A- yeah, this is, we're oh, coming okay, to okay. that. I got you, so I got you, I got you. That got their, their antennas up. Okay. For mammoths might be in this area. And they, they reconstructed that one. They built a hall of mammoths museum to display oh, really? that one. Yeah. And what, um, okay. I didn't know in, about in, that. In what happened town. to that one? Um, th- at the time, their story was it got bogged in the swampy ground next to a lake. Okay. And so they were putting in a new landfill recently, digging the big pit for the landfill. And 
they started noticing mammoth bones coming out and they were they were intentionally looking for them because of this previous find. So they, they were cutting into the lake sediments and they thought, well, we found mammoths here before, we should look at that. And sure enough, they started seeing mammoth bones. And is this a, is this a woolly mammoth? It's a Colombian mammoth. Columbia not mammoth. Yeah, so Was that bigger, bigger than woolly? Bigger. Okay. Yep. Uh, pretty impressive critter. So they're more of a southerly, warmer climate mammoth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they were fortunate that they had people on site to look for the mammoth bones. Uh, they, after they were exposed in the cut bank there, they could go in and do some excavations and they uncovered remarkable sets of mammoth bones. I think the... Well, as I've been reading through the the press release that they put out last week, um, the 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 things that I can say about the site that are observations that are facts are that their salvage excavations uncovered 824 bones. Most of them were mammoths, but there was also a couple camel bones. There was a horse tooth, and they're deposited in finely bedded deposits. Some of them are clay layers, and some of them are volcanic ash layers. And those finely bedded deposits are inset into older lake deposits. Okay. So that's what we know about it. That's what, uh, from my reading of it, I was take away as observations. From that, the whole set of interpretations that kind of roll out in the press release are that there were 14 mammoths there, that they were found in two large excavated pits, uh, that there was systematic regular hunting of them, that it was in intensive use of the mammoths that were there. Uh, for example, they say uh, the mandibles, the jawbones are turned upside down. So obviously they were cutting the tongues out if the mandibles are upside down. Is that obvious? No. Oh, that's what I was <laughs> um, curious about. Uh, no bones. Because the press was even being like, and their tongues would have weighed 26 pounds. Yeah, you know, 12 kilo <laughs> tongues. It would have been, yeah, just because, and again, what's the likelihood that if you're laying on the ground, your jawbone's going to turn this way as opposed to, you know, it's fun, fun to have So, so, well, so that yeah. was because it was upside down. Right. It, it, was, would, be, it, it must have been good, someone getting the tongue. Easy access to the tongue from the bottom. You know, and you cut into a bison to get its tongue out. If it's if it's fresh, you can open it out and get the, the tongue out. Yeah, but, but even when I cut tongues out of stuff, I can't tell you what way I leave the head. No. And the way you leave it, it's not – so let's leave the tongues for a minute. Um, the bones weren't fully articulated in these new areas. Again, they were scattered like we talked about at Hudson Maine. Um, so that's obvious butchering. Um, they said that they found – well, uh, in one area, they found six right scapulas, um, no left scapulas, shoulder blades. Uh, so obviously, people must have taken the left scapulas That's away. a good one. Well, that's pretty good. Well, let me. That's um, a tasty one. Let me give what... you. Let me give you one bad taphonomic joke, and then um, we'll get back to the real world. Um, I would say it's anomalous to find all right scapulas because we usually find the scapulas from the other side. Yeah. Because if they weren't left, ta-da, you wouldn't find them. Uh, I got you. That's good. That's, that's good. The, the, that's a good taphonomy that, joke. Um, so the whole series of things there, let's go back to sort of down the list. 14. Well, well, okay. Yeah. Cause yeah. there's a, there's one that they felt was laid out ceremonially because it had been injured in the past. Well, it's, it's tusk had been broken in the past and, um. And they honored it by laying it out ceremonially. They'd um, moved its scapulas or its pelvis up by its head. There was another, um, uh, tusk from another animal that was placed around it. 
it's sort of one of those classic examples of there's patterns in the piles of these bones. And the only explanation that's grasped at is humans must have done it. So I think it's a fabulous site. Um, every one of their sort of um, things that they've interpreted, I see as research questions okay. rather than answers. Yeah. Of it's a and the press the probably is, runs away with this stuff well, too, right? The press, well, the press do, but I think in this case, and I don't want to sound derogatory about this. The excavators may have as well. Because think if you're faced with this amazing quantity of mammoth bones in an area where people are digging a landfill, and you know it's an important research thing, and you go to the press, you're going to want to make it sound as important as possible to be sure it doesn't get destroyed. I would do oh, that myself. You know, yeah, um, yeah. Here's, here's this fabulous site, and you're talking, you, you've got to make it a site that is worthy of preservation and further research so that next time something's found. So I'm not saying they necessarily did that, but in the back of, if I were faced with a pile of mammoth bones that impressing, I'd be really worried about the preservation of them and future areas of the site and trying to get everything I could for preservation and protection and funding. And start running the coolest version. That start could, running the coolest that version. could maybe yeah. be true. So I don't think at present, and on this site, there's no scientific publication associated with it. There's one. Well, there's going to be one, right? Sometime, but right now it's one like four-page press release that every one of the newspaper articles have been taking this one press release and spinning it a little different. Did, would so, you would you welcome an opportunity to go down there and have a look? I'm retired. Yeah, and I would love to, but that to do a site like that effectively need somebody with a lot of energy and a lot of time. It'd be, oh, I'd love to look at it. I would be on a plane in a minute just to go drool on a site like that. Mm -hmm. um, just because of, as they sort of mentioned in some of the press releases, and, and this is where I get to like on Hudson Mang and a lot of others, in terms of really understanding the past of these landscapes we live on, at one level, it doesn't matter whether it's a human kill site or not. Understanding the past ecology and life ways of the mammoths in that environment that we know that in some instances in what, 14, 15 sites, humans were preying on mammoths directly. Understanding the biology and the ecology of those mammoths is key. So mm -hmm. regardless of whether this site has human involvement, it's a key site. Are they finding human, are, are they finding artifacts? They report no stone tools from it. Which again is sort of surprising. If you've got fourteen mammoths and you never once resharpen a stone tool, you're using essentially a disposable tool. Yeah, um, and you never lose one. You know, um, think about all the huge piles of guts and gore and just bloody stuff that you're going to be dropping tools and losing. How could you not lose something? Yeah. Uh, so um, buzz killing. I, I'm skeptical about the site. Um, and another thing that I'm skeptical about is that they're excavated pits. Uh, they oh, talk, is that right? They talk about the site. Six foot, six foot deep holes. Oh, you know, I, I just told my kid. Meters. I just told my kid this morning about this. They was telling me how they actually do it. Uh -huh. He says they put sharp sticks in the bottom. I don't know where he got that, but he knew that. Um, the geology. Well, they don't talk about the geology of the site. They. Um, I, it's, I know it's radio, so I brought in some good pictures. Um, this is what the site looks like. There's a pile of bones. You can see there's sediments here. And then right over here, this is the sort of drop-off. There yep. is, are indeed drop, steep drop-offs 
adjacent to the bone. They think that's the natural fate. They think this edge. is the cut that was there. Yeah, so what he's looking at. It just looks like a, I don't know, man, like a ledge, like a, like a, imagine a six foot high cut bank. Well, they talk, yeah, cut bank, real high potential. They talk about in the article that at the time the site was forming, the lake that it was forming around was, its level was dropping. It was drying up. Okay. So as the lake level is dropping, any water that's running into it is going to cut in channels yeah. into it. So. First, they're going to have to tell me that these aren't erosional channels cutting into that lowered lake level. Um, jumping to the conclusion that you've got um, more recent sediments um, in older sediments, and the only way that can happen is humans digging a hole, uh, that's, a, that's quite a leap. We've all, a lot of the bison kill sites we found find that are in Arroyos have the same sort of sedimentation, old drainage, bison killed in the bottom of it, sediment builds up over it. People didn't dig the drainage. Yeah, so, I got you. Um, I don't know. The pits is a stretch for me. Um, just to get, you were talking earlier about how many people it would take to butcher um, 800 bison. How many people is it going to take to dig a, what is it, 80 meter long by 25 meter wide hole, two meters deep? Um you know, that's half the size of a football That's field. like some Egyptian grade business yeah. right there. I was going to yeah. say, pyramids. <laughs> yeah. And um, why are you going to invest that much labor where you're not out hunting in an environment that's supposedly fairly rich in mammoths? Yeah, it's going to, you're going to be sure you're going to get them if they're right there. But we talked about, uh, one of the things that I've been worrying about recently a lot. How, how, okay, let me ask, stop for a minute. Why did you not, like, okay, when this comes out, why do you not write, <laughs> so it comes out, it was reported in the New York Times. Uh-huh. Why do you not write a letter, do you just not waste your time? Like, why did you not write a letter to the editor saying, like, whoa, 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 whoa here a minute, and, and kind of like lay out, like, why do you let, the, why, why, did, why do you guys let the whole thing run and catch on fire and then guys like me telling their kids all about it? <laughs> Good question. Um, Preservation, like he said. Uh, well, oh. um, laziness, um, uh, <laughs> you know, the, it's not my problem. I'm retired. Um, um, I, we've heard these stories. I don't, you, good question. It doesn't They're, burn you up? At this stage, it sort of runs off the back. We've heard that over and over and over and over and over again. Um, you often get this buzz of, of press, and then you start looking at the story a little deeper and you find out, well, it's not that simple. I find that's the thing is because I like to follow anthropology. It is like I do find that the stories generally get less interesting. Uh, yeah. With the exception of the woman's skull they found down in the Yucatan underwater. Oh, I, I'm not familiar with that. No, that was a good so story. Good that story. got better. Okay. Yeah, I thought that one got better. Yeah. It's so old. I mean, it's like, I think it was one of the one of the oldest pieces of human remains in the New World. Uh huh. And, and how did it get better? Oh, because it's, they found all the stuff that it was with. Okay. Yeah, all the other bones that were down in there, and and um, you know, like her, it was like they, they were able to determine it was like a young woman and like injuries and oh, all the, the whole life in, history, yeah, yeah, and stuff that was yeah. in there. Just wanted it being good. Uh-huh. And then that dude that they that seven thousand year old dude they found in Europe. Otzi, the Iceman. Yeah, that about story 6, got 000. good. You know, here's something that's really interesting about Otzi that's not related to Otzi at all. Uh, but he's about, what, 3,000 years old, 4,000 years Killed old. Killed by an arrow. 
Uh, well, it died by, yeah, he has. Yeah, it was carrying and, arrow in him. And they can reconstruct his diet based on what's in his stomach. They were looking at the lichens that were growing. Just amazing He had pictures. tricked out boots that had three different kinds of hides uh-huh. on them and stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, that so, was so badass. The, the fun thing right here um, in this area of the world to know about is the oldest artic- artifact from an ice patch anywhere in the world comes from the Beartooth Mountains here. No. Yeah, that's 10,000 years old. So about three times the age of Otzi really? is something that, yeah. There's what a, was it? Uh, uh, Atl a dart shaft. A researcher here in Bozeman, Craig Lee, uh, founded a few years ago, radiocarbon dated. He's been working on these high elevation ice patches that are melting out and exposing the stuff that's been trapped in. He's, so he's right come here. across our radar. Yeah. Right oh, but this, I remember the guy, there was a dude, I remember two things like this in Canada, but I didn't know someone found an Atlatl shaft. The, the oldest the ice patch. What was it made out of? Uh, birch, I believe, but don't quote me on Did, that. Was it still armed? No, it's just got the shaft and the point isn't on it and it's kind of warped from being it, but it's got the marks on it and it's got the notch where the point would have went in it. Was it, was it decorative at all? Well, it has a couple marks on it that he thinks may be ownership marks. If you know, if you've got a dart and several darts end up in an animal and you want to say, well, my dart got it. No, that's my dart. So you do occasionally put marks on it. to be Yeah, like everybody it. uses different fletching on right. their arrows, man. Yeah. No shit. So I don't know. Just that. I like to bring that up just because we start talking about all the fabulous stuff. And I do a lot of work with kids. Um, and I grew up in a small town called Matitsi, Wyoming, where you think you're in the back of nowhere and there's nothing neat going on there. So when I work with kids in this area, I try and bring up things like that. Did you know the oldest one of those in the world comes from right here in our yeah. own backyard? I find people I, – I was just telling someone this morning about how uh, – you know where Willsall is. Uh-huh. I mean, you drive there – you know, you'd be there in time for lunch. Uh-huh. Uh, for a long time, that was the oldest human remains uh-huh. in the new world of uh-huh. a little the boy. Anzic, yeah. yeah, a little boy named Anzic One. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So just like right down the road, it's hard yeah. to picture. Uh, l- let me lay out like a, a, a bigger idea, a bigger notion on you. Do you feel that, um, do you feel that for a while, we really had this idea that early humans, that the, the, the earliest Americans, the first Americans, were these hard-hitting, very successful big game hunters. And they're going around slaying mammoths left and right, killing all kinds of big stuff, wiping animals off the, you know, wiping all the megafauna off the face of the earth. Um, and then my, like, like my, my casual observational following of anthropology is that that narrative has become disrupted and that it's like they were eating lots of other stuff. Um, Places that we thought they'd killed them, they weren't actually killing them. They ate a lot of clams. They ate a lot of turtles. They ate a lot of seeds and nuts. And yeah, maybe now and then they got lucky and found a crippled up mammoth and killed it and ate it. Like, Like, where do you sit on that, on the extremes? And I know that this stuff bounces in extremes, right? It'd be like, all they ate was mammoths, and uh-huh. someone's going to probably counter that with they no, never they, they never they ate were a all vegan. Yeah, they were all <laughs> vegan, and then somewhere right. Like, how how do you feel about do you, do you think that that's true that that flow of that perception is going through a change and and where do you, what version is right? Okay, you um, prefaced that with saying you wanted to look at a little bigger, sort of broader question, and I agree with that sort of perspective entirely, and. Um, 
for years, I was fascinated with the peopling of Americas. That was one of those things that just, that's why I looked at these early kill sites and mammoth sites and bison sites to try and understand. Well, you know why? Because it is the, the most fascinating thing in the universe. Oh, and it's um, <laughs> like playing this. You can't one, even, it's not even debatable. It's not even a debatable well, point. And excavating them is, those sites is like playing this wonderful game of pickup sticks. It's just the most fun you can have doing. So I was fascinated by it. And in the last 20 years, I become much less fascinated with the peopling of the Americas question. Why? Because that isn't the question. The question is, why did we leave Africa? The peopling the Americas is, we ended up everywhere in the globe. We peopled the planet. Yeah. We're, we're the yeah. biggest invasive species. So yeah, what happened? Yeah, we peopled America because we peopled everywhere. Yeah. So why is it that we started expanding out of Africa in the first place? Why did you move away from home? Curious? Curious, but there's also, I think, getting back to the, the specifics of your question. We're working on a site in northwestern Ethiopia at about 70,000 years of age, trying to answer that question of what was going on with humans in terms of our ecology right before we left Africa and expanded into the rest of the world. The diaspora, the yeah. human diaspora. And traditionally, when people have looked at human evolution and human movement into Europe, just like in the peopling of Americas, they focused on that big game hunter. You know, that we can expand because we're the the apex predator into every environment we go into. One of the things we're seeing on our 70,000-year-old Middle Stone Age site on the tributaries of the Blue Nile is that- Where's that? It's um, northwestern Ethiopia. Okay. Um, so right around the time when we think that right, like anatomically- with the anatomically modern, modern humans, humans were, were split. Right before we started that diaspora. And what we're seeing is, yeah, there's a few big game animals there. But there's also every other damn thing that crawled, swam, wiggled, walked. Um, I think one of the things that makes us effective is not the big game hunting per se, but that we are just so plastic in our diet. We are the the classic omnivores, which mm -hmm. means that you can move into any environment out there and you're going to find something to eat. Do you know that I just heard the other day that 80, I think it's like 80 some percent of the animals on the planet are carnivorous. It's the dominant form because uh -huh. you got to go in like all the fish and stuff, uh -huh. right? Yeah. It's the dominant, the dominant way to be. So if you Omnivores can, are a small minority. Which, which gives you uh, that opens up all those other niches. Yeah. So I think the peopling of the Americas, the, the, the answer to the peopling of the Americas, um, the timing we still don't have down, but it's that we're just flexible in what we can eat and what we can do. And you, when you plug that into- Like we left because we could? We left because we could and we had- um, uh, if you can eat anything, you can go any damn where you want. Yeah. You, you know, as you said, you plug in curiosity to that. You plug in even marginal population growth to where if um, oldest kid, you know, why don't you go over in that next valley? Like uh, not like not propelled by the need to go kill thousand pound. Because you're constantly might, running out of thousand pound mammals. That might sometimes pull you, but um, at other times, it, one of the things we're seeing along the Blue Nile is that um, the tributary we're on is a seasonal river. It has, you know, 100 meters wide, 20 meters deep during the rainy season, but then during the dry season, it ends up into these little puddles. And those little puddles are where the game's attracted to. You can walk out into those puddles and you pick up um, meter long catfish. Um, you know, that's just, the, so the dry seasons, and this runs counter to the ways. And that's a, a lot big of, cat, man. It's, yeah. But in the past. Do you fish with, there? No, we, well, we've, uh, we fish to collect the fish to 
bury them in the ground to collect their bones to put into our comparative collection. <laughs> gotcha, the the locals gotcha. give, yeah, give us that sort of look of you're doing what with that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like this guy's got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, it's looking like in terms of resource predictability, in the past models of when people left Africa suggested we did it during the wetter phases of where you can make it through the Sahara and down along the Nile yeah. Valley that obviously you're going to do it when it's wetter. But what we're seeing on this side is when it's during the rainy seasons and during the high moisture season is a really tough time to get away because the game's dispersed. Uh, it's tough to fish in the rivers. You can't get the mollusks. You can't get the fish. But the dry seasons are where the resources become predictable because they're around those few remaining water holes. And so you could move from water hole to water hole to water hole around these small resources rather than the big, you know, following the big game. You're following the catfish and the mollusk from one water hole like pearls on a string down the river. It's just going to suck you down the river drain yep. during the time of year when, you know, again, we've thought of it in the past, if you're not going to be out there in the middle of the desert during the dry season, it might make it the most predictable, the most uh, likely, the, not only the small stuff, but if there's game animals in the area, they're going to be coming there to water. So you're going to know that several times a day, there's going to be game animals there as well. You know, uh, we've been fortunate enough to travel a little bit on some rivers down in South America with Amerindians. Uh-huh. And um, they really like the dry season. Oh, yeah. Because the, the, fi the fishing's phenomenal. And they during, always talk about when the dry season, dry season, dry season. They like it. They like the dry season to travel because everything gets concentrated yep. and, in and the deep holes. Wet season, it's it's muddy and it's awful and it's terrible. And you sit around in your, you get rained on and it's miserable. Yeah. The only thing they like, they talk about, the only thing they like about the wet season is if it gets so wet that you have small little hills that become like refugia. Oh, and everything gets And you can, go there uh -huh. and you can go there and get a lot of, you can go there and, and animals will have to get up on those so, and, and you, you can just pull up and kill them. That's fun. That's the flip side of our dry season. You know, there's yeah. those two times a year when you've got these, these sort of um, landscape scale grocery stores because everything's there. They're your big Costco. Yeah, they talk about yeah. you go out. If it gets like that, they would go out in their boats and uh, just clean up. And they know exactly where yeah. those places are. Where everybody likes yeah. to hang out. Yeah. But yeah, they always talk about the dry season being when you want to fish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's your like, uh, what's your theory on the, I mean, like, where do you stand on the Blitz, uh, the Blitz Creek hypothesis idea in North America that humans, that, that, that humans, Came in. I mean, this idea is popular in seventy nine, yeah. eighty, yep. and maintain remained popular for a while. Humans came in and killed everything, and that's why the mammoths are gone because people killed them and ate them all. Are, are you? Are do you sort of go against the grain on that, or I don't know. Well, what what is the grain on that now? No, I think um, the grain on it now is this bullshit. I think I would um, say like the, the scholarly consensus. Let, let's go back to you know we've been talking about Hudson Mang. We left that story with killing might be one potential of it. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at Pleistocene extinctions. I'm sure that having a new novel predator on the scene had something to do with it. Yeah. But if you've got a climate change, if you've got vegetation change, if you've got water ch source change, if you've got maybe new diseases on the scene, it's hard to say which one of them is the the killing stroke. That uh, I don't think you can say that humans had nothing to do with it. Any, you could, you know, you can't put wolves back into Yellowstone, the novel predator, and say they don't have something to do with game population numbers. So humans had something to do with it, but I don't think the Blitzkrieg model, I think it's too simplistic. I think it um, goes back to where we started. It falls back to that if there's a pattern, all these animals dying within a couple hundred year period, we must have done it because nothing else creates patterns. Yeah. Uh, here's another one for you. 
I was say, I was saying to someone the other day, the other day, Yanni was there. We were out doing a little arrowhead hunting on a buddy's ranch because there's a spot where there's like a hill. He's, he's got a barn. Up above his barn, there's a little benchy hill right above a creek. And there's sort of this little erosion line that kind of marches its way up mm-hmm. the hill. And so one of the guys out there that works on the ranch was saying, you know, a cool place to look is every year I'll go up and look at that little erosion line. You'll find a lot of flakes, stone flakes. Um, and we went up there and had a look around and found a bunch of stone flakes and found one little small little, um, I mean, like a little point. The tip was missing, but a little point the size of your thumbnail. Mm-hmm. Uh I was explaining to everybody. I don't know if Yanni, if he was in earshot, but I was because he was off looking around too. I was explaining to everybody like, man, all the low hanging fruit's gone. And I was saying like, you read about arrowhead hunting in like the 30s, because for a long time no one gave it, no no one cared, like he's, no one picked it up. Then all of a sudden it became interesting, and then you got all these guys like sheep herders from the 30s and 40s that would fill five gallon buckets full of arrowheads, and now I was saying there's nothing left. But before we started our recorded conversation here you were talking about the kind of like stunning amount of sites you're still able to identify when you go out looking um touch on that like i guess like different avenues of approach that i would like you to take would be one how like like how much stuff is out there do you agree that all the that everything's been picked over and it's all gone now have we not even scratched the surface on human old human sites, you just opened up a whole warren of rabbit holes. Sure, that I'm trying to so decide trying to do. which one to go down. Um, okay, let me ask you. Uh, me, a lot of a lot of areas have been very heavily picked over. Okay, so which, that's true. Which, from an archaeological perspective, is just devastating. Really, which means you can find an archaeological site. There'll be a few flakes there, and all you can say about it is. People were here sometime in the last 13,000 years, yeah. which we knew before that. When um, it was just like little chips. Yeah. Uh, if the points are there, those are like like we talked about, well, like a GPS puts a timestamp on every time you're in a spot. Mm-hmm. If you've got a point there, you've got a timestamp of when people were there. So unfortunately for years, well, I grew up hunting arrowheads. My grandpa took me out. That's sort of what got me fascinated with it. People have been collecting arrowheads in particular, which means they've been sort of erasing time from the surface archaeological record. Yeah. Uh, because unless you know, like we talked about, an individual bone in a site knowing where it comes from as a puzzle piece, unless you know where each one of those points come from, it just is turned into a nice little piece of rock rather than being a piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So um, yeah, things have been picked over real severely. Uh, and it means it makes our job even harder as an archaeologist to try and understand human use of landscapes. Um, I, I was talking to you a little bit about the things that we find in remote areas away from where people get in the high elevations of wilderness areas. Yeah. And we do find points there. Uh, most of what we find are the small flakes. The av- I, I think I mentioned in the last – um, 20 years, we found close to well, a little over 200,000 artifacts. Most of them are the small flakes. And even in the remote areas, you know, 20 miles from a trailhead back in the wilderness areas, um, we've been picking up, folks have been picking up the points for the last 100 to 150 years. So even back there, there, um, 
sparse and the record is terribly degraded. I got a when friend who's got it, quite a collection of points. Uh-huh. And his strategy, I almost hesitate to say what his strategy is. His strategy is uh, high mountain passes. Uh-huh. It's um, – we get – remind me to get back to that here in a minute. Um, and I need to make this point. High mountain passes means they're on Forest Service property. You're not often, supposed to touch them. Which means uh, he's probably got enough points to make it a real easy felony offense at this point. <laughs> um, which yeah, means, we were talking there, Dave, man. It's like which it's, means, it's, it's you're asking a lot of somebody. Which means, uh, no, let me let me go down that no, rabbit hole. Okay. Um, okay, I we do catch and release archaeology up there. We found these two hundred thousand things, and damn near all of them are there. Okay, let me we ask make, you this though: make, Did you tuck them in, or did you leave them on the we surface? We leave them on the surface. I'm you not going to damage the archaeological record by changing yeah, it. Yeah, but then some other chump's going to find them. I and I often get that down in the bar. If you don't pick it up, some other sob will, and I say. Ah, my aspiration has never to been one of those SOBs. It's it can, when, when, wait, wait, when get, we're on the yeah. Arctic Slope, uh-huh. we tucked them all into the moss. Uh-huh. Um, we j- have, you jabbed it as close uh, as yeah. where you found it. You just tucked it into the moss. We we um, we use um, high precision GNSS receivers. We have its location down to within ten centimeters. Yeah, so really? if we tucked it in, we could come back and find it. But I, when I work with students. I see the archaeological record, one of my jobs is to leave it as much unchanged by me as possible so that they can come back later and demonstrate why that old SOB Todd was wrong in his interpretations. Yeah. If I start pushing things down into the sod that far. Watch you push it into a bone on accident. Or if they come back and start <laughs> excavating that site and the elevation of that point is five centimeters different than everything else on it, uh, they're going to say, well, these are two different occupations. Todd was wrong. That point isn't associated. So, yeah. uh, my, I see archaeology as sort of like medicine. The first rule is do no harm. Uh, leave it as intact as possible. Yeah, when you and see an do, old lady drop her purse, drop uh-huh. her, uh, drop her uh, uh-huh. driver's license. Yep. Or credit card, right? Whatever. She drops five bucks. Uh-huh. Would you be like, yeah, I'm going to take that five bucks because no. I wouldn't, but someone else would. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> so. one of the things that I, as I get older, I, ha- I now have grandchildren. And I'm waiting for the day, the oldest one is three now, where I can start taking them back onto the landscape and showing them where these points are in their natural habitat. Not only does that make me super grandpa, but it connects the people that, you know, get to find that point with that landscape in a different way. It's not just, you know, this open hillside. It's that hillside where these, where I found that point. So I think just that leaving them there has that opportunity to connect people with the landscape in a way they don't otherwise have. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it. It is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video and in that video you'll see 
Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Let's step back from it further. Um, one of the reasons we don't see or that we don't envision wilderness areas as having a lot of archaeology is by time the fur, traper, fur trappers came into the mountains, a lot of the Native Americans had been living there, had been killed by disease, or they'd been pulled out of the mountains to the uh, trading post down in the lower elevations. It was an underpopulated landscape. And so we've brought that, that notion into the present of high mountain areas, the passes, and they were depopulated. Oh, you don't think of them like that historically? You think that people were up there hunting? Oh now? yeah, we see. Um, we see. I get um, that idea. We, we'll, we'll be way up in the mountains, and I wonder if they ever would have left the river valleys and even gone up in there. We see. Um, we've got teepee ring sites, habitation sites at over eleven thousand feet. We've got sites um, in the high elevation uh, where we find um, April to March mountain sheep fetuses. They were up there in late winter. We find um, sites where there's bison fetuses from near full term back to just beginning at high elevation. They were there year round. And we see sites that are, and let me get back to my, 
the people were there much more than we think in the past. So getting back to the idea of wilderness depopulated no people, we eradicated the people from there. Yeah. And so if we're back into that same area, picking up the, the artifacts, the arrowheads that demonstrate their presence, we're taking that one step further by erasing their physical presence. And that just bothers me. That, that, I'm with you. That approaches to, yeah, we've already killed vast numbers of them and now we're going to erase their presence by removing those artifacts from that landscape. You know, I'm and constantly ask, trying to do self-improvement. Like I'm, re I'm exploring this idea right now of if you're hunting on a tag, uh huh. like I'm starting to think if I was a perfect person, and I did this once this year, <laughs> if I was a perfect person, you're hunting on a hunting tag and you wound something and you feel that you wounded it mortally but didn't recover you it. You say you've filled your you tag. Would, you would notch your tag, uh -huh. right? What I'm going to try to do is like, it would be very, very difficult for me, but to see a point or a half a point and, and leave it. Oh, one of the things, oh, that would be hard. One of the things we do <laughs> is we take um, latex molding material in uh -huh. that country with us. We find that perfect point. We make a mold of it. A little catch and release. Uh, catch and release. You put the point back, you come back and you can make a cast of that mold. You've got that three-dimensional memory right there. And I've thought... Um, wouldn't it be great if outfitters caught on to that, that you could take people into backcountry and rather than having that person collect that point once and take it back with them and give you a little tip. If every year when you went back and a new hunter, you could say, well, let's look around here for some arrowheads. They find that arrowhead, you make a mold of it and the arrowhead goes back in its place and the, the hunter gets to go back home with his memory. Yeah, It's another sort of, you know, catch and release, but of an economic value to the folks that do often encourage the picking them up. I don't want to. I don't want you to think that I'm like plying you for trade secrets, so that I can go up and ransack the uh -huh. federal lands. Because I'm definitely not. Uh huh. But uh, as much as you're comfortable, like when you're scouting, just rolling through the mountains, scouting around, do you sort of have you developed a sense of like this would be a good place to look, or do you have to treat everything equal because you didn't know what it used to be like? Or are you looking for you look like you see stone flakes? You kind of know your eye knows what to see for tent rings. Like, how do you sort of navigate if you're if you're trying to look through it through human eyes, right? From thousands of years ago, what are you imagining when you walk through the mountains? Let me give you, um, and I'm going to try and work through three answers to that. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, I was down talking to some elders on the Shoshone Reservation in Wyoming about this catch and release archaeology and they like that idea. And then I asked him another question, which was, you know, every time I'm in the mountains and I put my tent down and I start looking around where my tent is, I start finding flakes. Oh, yeah. And um, do you think, or would you be more comfortable with my leaving my tent there or should I move it off your ancestral site? And the guy I was talking to thought about it for a minute and he said, you know, if I didn't see those flakes, I'd move your damn tent because something's wrong with oh. that place. <laughs> so um, yeah. sort of answer one is good places to camp in the past or good places to camp today. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's one. Second one is you sort of, as you're spending more time, like with anything else, you start to get that innate feel for places that should have stuff. You know, it just has that ping to it, the right sort of stuff. And so rely on that a little. But again, since um, we always want to evaluate our ideas rather than just saying, oh, I know where stuff is, I've been working with um, 
several people who are sort of uh, one of my former students, Paul Burnett, who's sort of a GIS modeling whiz. And we've developed probability models based on where we've looked in the past on where there's the greatest probability of finding things in, in present. We've got about 10 variables of landscape dimensions that go into this linear probability model and gives a probability model for every 10 by 10 meter area across the forest of oh, from, that right? from zero to a hundred percent of you're going to find something there. Is there something that's a hundred percent? No, we're at 98, 99%. And it's borne out. It's well, like to give you an example of, and we've reworked this model a couple of times. Um, one of the variables when we first hit the model of where we didn't find things was in heavily timbered areas. So heavily timbered areas, um, low probability of finding stuff. And then we started doing post-fire archaeology. And, you know, it's not a big gee whiz Mr. Science. One of the reasons that you don't see things in areas where there's that much duff under the trees is you can't see the damn ground. Yeah. Um, so we started doing work after fires and um, – we start seeing stuff there. So you throw the tree cover out of your model. Um, and we keep revising the model and we go out every year and work with it. Yeah. So when I was, when I was, uh, spent that 10 days hunting arrowheads with guys that were really good, like anthropologists on the North slope. Um, the first thing was open ground. If it's, if it's moss, don't waste your time. Yep. And the second thing was that they liked is like great places to camp. Uh-huh. And they found that in that country, um, confluences of rivers mm -hmm. and they make that sort of V that V of land where they come together and you'd find like flat benches on a nice little rise above those confluences, good visibility that you're out, you're camped on that bench. You can see the valleys around you, pretty flat ground, access the water. And they would love those spots. Well, yeah, you've let that cat out of the bag. So I can say, <laughs> yes, confluences <laughs> is one of the 10 variables we look at. Okay. Yeah. Still today, though, man. Oh, yeah. When you're floating um, down the river, it's a great place. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're retired, but you still work. So how, what, what makes being retired? Like, what, how define retired? No one pays um, you? No, no pesky paycheck. Um, so that's I, retirement? Yeah. I, I say, and it's sort of joking, but it's sort of true, is I no longer have that damn job getting in the way of my work. Yeah. Um, so I spend- um, Pencil pushing. Yeah, and um, being a university faculty member means administrative stuff and, uh, you know, endless things that are draining your time. Uh, and what drains your, doesn't drain your time is in a, in a university professor's interaction with students. I really miss that. Okay. Um, but just all the other sort of things that build up. So since I've retired. And what university did you retire from? Colorado State in Fort Collins. Okay. Um, since I've retired, I've spent two to three months most winters working on the projects in Ethiopia, like I'm talking about, uh, talked about that's earlier. That's what you do in the winter? That's what we do in our winter and that's their dry season. And in the summer, I've been focusing on, and again, this is, uh, when I retired, I wanted to get away from the data intensive things like bison bone bed. I wanted to retire and I thought what I'd really like to do in retirement is go backpacking in the mountains. And so I decided to start focusing on high elevation archaeology with this notion in the back of my head that I'm not going to find much. And therefore, I can still be doing archaeology, but I won't have those huge data sets to deal with. Yeah. Uh, the first year I went up there with students, um, we were going to survey 20 miles along a Forest Service trail corridor 
um, in a 10-day period. And I thought, boy, we can do that easy. We made it a mile and a half and recorded 6,000 artifacts. What? And I thought, this isn't – this. We hit, we hit the hot spot. And that's gone on and on and on and on. And right now, our cumulative data set is over 200,000 artifacts. So I'm again back in this – Huge data, big data, uh, <laughs> lots of attributes. Um, oh my God, did I get that wrong? Sort of thing. But it's it's exciting because the areas where we're working in the wilderness areas in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem are one of those blank spots on the archaeological map of knowledge. So not only do, do I get to embrace that ignorance again of here's something we don't know about, and so every time we go out, we're finding new and interesting things. And one of the projects I'm working on now as sort of to dovetail with that is I've been working with some of the people that have been doing the migration studies yep. of GPS collaring animals and following them and looking at how they move across the landscape. And we've been beginning to collaborate on whether those corridors that the game animals are using may well have been corridors that people would have used. So not only have I um, failed in retirement in getting something that is a lot more complex than I thought, but you keep realizing that you can't just do the archaeology to understand it. You need to start worrying about the biology of all the other critters that are using those landscapes simultaneously. I like that you're filling in the map like that because I feel like that that would wind up being helpful when people want to develop pristine ecosystems that you could talk about how there's a lot of cultural sites there. It, it, I know but, you probably can't say like, oh, yeah, but like from my perspective, you could weaponize that stuff and use it to protect wilderness. It Well, it has – that's a double-edged sword it, in that some people who are anti-wilderness will make the argument, well, if you're saying that people have been there forever, oh, yeah. why should we keep people out today? So you've got to watch how you make that argument. I'd say, ah, yeah. just because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there, that's, well, that's a great point. Yeah, there, There's yeah. a real difference between- it can be doubly weaponized. Yeah, between protecting- It's like, oh, so people were all over here all the time. And you're saying they were a major component of the environment. They, they were the apex year, predator. They, they lived here year-round. Year okay, yeah. let's put the road in there and get the ski area. Yeah, yep. let's get everybody back up in there. Yep. Let's, uh, yeah, it's like- um, we were talking about mammoths and all the people that want to do the DNA and recreate mammoths. You know, you could make that same argument and folks might say, well, let's re-people the wilderness. Yeah. And, and now I'm, I'm not. Oh, I wish I would have brought it up. Phil, edit all this out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you've got to, um, that's one of those arguments that you, it's going to be there. Anytime you start talking about finding archaeology in the wilderness, and I've had people say that to me seriously of, well, then why do we have wilderness? Yeah. It's it's not that the concept. I got to think about it for a minute. I'll come up with something. It, it's good. just it's the law was poorly written when it says where man is only a visitor. It might you know we might just reword the law to where um, contemporary use of it is only transient or something like that. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, what do you got? That's been great. It's a lot to take in. Um, we should ask Phil if he's got anything he wants to say, too. Sure, we can do that. You can throw to Phil after you do yours. Or Phil can go on, then you can do yours. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a, a, a whole lot. I just— um, You steal a lot of arrowheads, Phil, off the federal land? I never found one. Never you ever looked? Never looked, though. So, um, you got some hot tips today. 
You're going to use it to abuse the law? Not at all. At least I, I won't say I will in front of Larry. Yeah, but, I mean, that'd um, be really bad if you did. Yeah, no. I find a lot of discomfort and uncertainty, and I guess that could get, uh, and so I, that's a foolish way to live. I, uh-huh. I understand that, but I, I love talking or listening to people like you who seem to relish in it. Um, I, you know, I'm sort of one of those almost OCD organizing things. When we go into the back country, for example, I've got a spreadsheet um, that tells people their calorie output per day for the entire time for my food shopping list. You know, I'm, I don't like uncertainty, but unfortunately, that's the way the world is. And unless you want to live in a delusional world, um, you've sort of got to embrace it. So the things that you can I can control how many calories I take into the mountains for 23 days. I can't control what happened in the past and I, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. You deal with the things that you, you can put in its own little boxes and archaeology, one of the reasons I really love it is because of that uncertainty. Um, I would hate it to be in a field or a job when you retired, you say, well, I know everything I need to know about this. I can just go fishing for the rest. Not to say fishing's a bad thing, but you can just play golf. I, I, I think you want to talk about something you can never figure out. Yeah. Fishing. I, I, yeah. Well, That's it's the same, hard. It's the same thing. Uh, if you're uh, an avid fisher person, you're going to be working for that forever. Mm-hmm. And you just start figuring out all the shit you don't know. If you if you do it right, it's always slapping you in the face with what you don't know. Yeah. Wake up and pay better attention and think about it this way. And so, uh, it to me, it makes me feel more like a kid all the time because you're always sort of curious. You're asking why, 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 like kids always do, um, rather than saying I've got the answers. You know who didn't cope with that well? Uh, not that you would know him. My father didn't cope with that well. My father uh, didn't. He, he never. You know, he he didn't finish high. He didn't like formally finish high school, right? But um, he never fell in love with the uh, the journey uh-huh. of knowledge, and would uh, be dismissive of entire fields of inquiry because they were always, as he put it, changing their story. Uh huh. He didn't like it, so it'd be that instead of saying, oh, it'd be really interesting to understand like why mammoths went extinct and uh-huh. a guy floats an idea and people are like, oh, that's a great idea. And then later someone pokes some holes in it. It wouldn't be that he remained interested. He would be, yeah, just ah, <laughs> they don't, you know, they must, they don't know what they're talking about. And he would get like angry about it uh-huh. and, always... and, not, and condemn the whole question uh-huh. because they were changing their story again. Uh-huh. So you can imagine how you'd feel about, like, I, I think, like, so the, the African diaspora, right? That changes all the time, and he would just get where he didn't want to hear about it. It was all hogwash. It, it can't be right if there if it isn't black and white. Yeah. Which is— um, He wanted to know the damn answer yeah. now. Uh-huh. If not, if they're all stupid. No one should even wonder about it. Sort of—my um, dad was a lot the same way. You know, he never finished high school. He was a rancher. He, you know— uh, and he was real skeptical when I started talking about going into this archaeology stuff. First of all, why don't you get a real job? Um, and secondly, are you going to ever get paid to do it? And then I got the university jobs and I started getting paid and I started, you know, being in Africa and being in France and excavating these bison sites. And he put up with it because it brought the money in. And it wasn't until... Like that legitimized it. That le- legitimized yeah. it. But it wasn't until he was almost gone. And I went in to talk to him the night before he died. 
And I was telling him about how he was going to shift careers and go into the mountains and try and understand what was going on there and trying to see how the people and the game animals interacted and get up there and start looking where nobody had ever looked. And he pulled off his oxygen mask and he said, it sounds like you're finally doing something worthwhile. Oh, really? <laughs> so, you know, talk about another spur to, to get out of the academic and get into that. You know, that, yeah, that's I finally got that. Um, I got that you stamp peaked, of approval. Yeah, it got his, you piqued his curiosity. <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter, you know, that I was academic full professor at university. That was just, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you're you. finally, you're finally doing something that matters. Well, Yanni. What have you learned that's been interesting in this, in post, in retirement of like these mountain landscapes, these, the. I just think how complex and how intensively they've been used and that we've, you know, we, we. For years, the archaeologists have specialized in the areas we can get to. It's like that we've specialized on bone beds because they're easy to see. We've specialized in planes, areas where you can drive a four-wheel drive to. And there's this whole other world that we know almost nothing about. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be either an archaeologist or an astronaut. So this is sort of combining both <laughs> of those because I'm in a new world doing archaeology and everything we find there is, wow. Um, you know, teepee rings, stone circles at 11,000 feet that have habitation debris. What are they doing up here? I, you need, you know, one of those thousand dollar Swedish tents plopped, told it in place, but they're up there in the high winds. They're doing things that, so I think just that, oh my God, what's, there's this world that I never knew existed is probably the most exciting thing I've ever seen. It's, it's what keeps you keeps you going. And I wish I'd retired 30 years ago to where I had better energy, better energy to be up there. Like I said earlier, we were up for 23 days this summer. And after about 10 days, I got this message on our inReach from our um, outfitter that said, do you need anything? And I think he thought we'd ask for a bottle of whiskey or some beef steaks or something like that. And I said, yeah, we're about out of ibuprofen. <laughs> we're getting to the age <laughs> where, you know, that becomes a real serious thing. So I, I wish I could have started into these unknown landscapes earlier. You know, it's funny, man. We we're, um, my brother and I were up in the, kind of like in the subalpine zone in some of the, the similar area to what you've been talking about. And this, and had this conversation this September where we found a very improbable little beaver dam. Uh huh. And I was like, man, like what the hell is that thing doing up here? And that led us to talking about, uh, during the mountain man era, we're like, weren't those guys would ever like found this beaver, right? Uh -huh. When they were just scouring this place out. And then that got us talking about if you sat overlooking this meadow we were on, I was like, how many years would you have to sit here before someone strolled through? If you were uh -huh. here 2,000 years ago, right. 3,000 years ago. Uh -huh. And we were I like, as we we're talking about this, we're imagining like it must have been you could have sat here 10 years and no one would have come by. I think actually. But then maybe it's saying, like, maybe like you're saying, like you'd have been seeing someone every month come through there. Um, I relish the isolation of being in the wilderness and not seeing people. And one of the reasons I've quit hunting as much is by the time hunting season rolls around, my empty wilderness starts to become repopulated. Yeah. But I'll bet you that in the past, and what we're seeing from the archaeological record, is that the year-round number of people there was much higher than today. So rather than thinking of it at 2,000 years ago, how long would you have had to sit here till – somebody walked by, it probably should be flipped on its head and said, how long would I be sitting here before some other SOB came by and spooked the game? Yeah. 
Let me ask That's you a question. That's yeah. interesting, um, yeah. One of the things that I really get fascinated by or what attracts me to the mountains is I've always got to get over that next pass or look at that next drainage. You know, it just- I got it, that problem, Especially get older, I go, God, will I ever get over that pass into that drainage? And we talked about people moving into areas and that curiosity has got to be part of it. You know, you want to tie the country together of what's over here and what's over there and- Yeah, I got that problem real bad. <laughs> uh-huh. There's a spot that's bugging the hell out of me up in Alaska where we always get up and look and you and it's like we're in kind of this alpine area that's real beautiful. Uh-huh. And then there's this deep trough of like nasty looking timber. But then you see but this then other, on the other one. Side? Yeah, there's another one popping up and it's like there's no way to get in there. Like uh-huh. that's gotta be the coolest place in the world, you know. Uh-huh. And I'm always like, no, no one's probably been there for three hundred years. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Anything Were else? You involved yeah? oh, at all in that camp that was recently discovered above uh Gunnison? Oh, that's a cool spot. Man. Oh, the the one up on the the Folsom sites up there. Yeah. No, I just read about it, and they're doing some you know fun stuff. There. Ten thousand feet above sea level yeah. winter camps, or even higher. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, pretty substantial structures. Again, that's when those building things, like badass houses paved with rocks. and yeah, stuff. we yeah. tend to think of we uh, we've talked about um, biases like um, only humans create patterns, and another bias that feeds into things like that is the older something is the least sophisticated, the poorly, more poorly made it is. And, you know, we've got time and time again, when you look at the archaeological record of North America in many ways, the older stuff is often the most finely crafted, the most sort of uh, best product. And as you get more recent, it turns into the, so that, that notion that we have that old is, is crappy, um, modern is better, whether it's housing structures or um, stone tool projectile point technology, just doesn't hold. And I love getting back to that uncertainty to take those things that we just assume we know and saying, now, wait a minute, let's look at that a little differently. And and so for me, the, the how do you know that? That again, it's like that young kids, daddy, why? Yeah. Is is sort of that's what drives my sort of curiosity is I've always got that sort of why and and what if I what if I picked that up and thought about it from a different way. If I had one token to a time machine, I, 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 there's like three things. Well, one would be that I'd go with Daniel Boone over the Cumberland Gap. Whatever the hell I can't remember what year it was, pre-revolutionary uh-huh. war uh-huh. and do that little jaunt with him. Um one that I would go like uh out with you know, like a, to, to hang out with some Folsom hunters 12,000 years uh-huh. ago. And the other one that I would go to like out to Miles City 20,000 years ago to see how long you got to sit there for a mammoth <laughs> walks by. Uh-huh. Like, was there a bunch or not many? Was this like you glass up shitloads of them or you like you look and look and look and can't find one? I would love to know that. Yeah. 40,000, 50,000, whatever. Uh-huh. But man, I would love to. If you, well, that's why some we're time machine about, stuff would be like people that would want to go back and watch them sign the Declaration of Independence. I mean, that's cool, but that's yeah. not as cool as a lot we, of other stuff. We were talking about that site in Mexico earlier. Um, that's one of those sites where you know, with that many animals that well preserved, you can start trying to answer for at least for that area. To where, uh, as I mentioned, trying to answer those paleoecological questions is as as interesting as trying to say how people interacted with them. So, you know, if I had my time machine, um, one of the things we've been finding in the mountains here that I hadn't seen ever in the mountains or glass trade beads. And mm. we think glass trade beads, fur trade period. We've got one site where we've got glass trade beads and metal that they're cutting into arrow points and things like that, that 
I submitted a butchered bison bone for radiocarbon date and got a radiocarbon date back of 1650. And being an oh, archaeologist, cool. I say, that's wrong. We know that trade beach. Yeah, there, there shouldn't be any metal points or. Yeah. yeah. And so we've submitted a couple more. And they're coming into that mid to late 1600s. Coming so, all the way up from the, from Mexico. Well, some are coming, these, by then some are coming in from the English and French fur traders on the East coast. Yeah. So I would love to be in the mountains of Northwest Wyoming, late 1600s, you know, 150 years before. And ask them, where the hell did you get that? And see, and, yeah. And <laughs> what's, cause that doesn't fit our picture at all. You know, we think of Lewis and Clark as coming through this area and being the first sort of interactions with the native Americans here. 150 years, they were plugged into these continental-wide trade networks. And again, I coming from a small town like Matitsi, I like to highlight that of, kid, you're from, not from the back of nowhere, you're in a place that's been connected with the rest of the continent forever. Yeah. I've brought this up, this will be my, this will be my final thought, but I brought this up a bunch of times where the historian Elliot West has a piece where he talks about when Lewis and Clark hit the Great Plains, there were... Indians on the Great Plains who had gone to Europe, met the king of France, and come back again. So in uh -huh. terms of like discovering, you know what I mean? Yep. It's a com it's a much and, more complex picture. And a lot of us use that Lewis and Clark period as, as the baseline of whether it's how many grizzlies they saw, saw or the mm -hmm. bison populations and this and that and the other. And if you consider the like, I think it was the uh, the Crow tribe in the late 1700s lost 60 to 80% of their population from disease. What's, you know, that's removing huge numbers of key predators from the environment. So by the time Lewis and Clark's comes through, the environment's reorganized in a way it may have never been. Grossly so, manipulated. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, um, well, or, or under manipulated. You know, you all of a sudden it's like. Well, I was being manipulated, meaning like impact yeah, of, yeah, yeah impact so of man. Yeah. A lot of our ideas of managing wilderness areas or managing game is to try and get back to that baseline that probably never existed. That baseline of when Lewis and Clark came through was probably artificial in that it had been. Depopulated. The, it, the ecology had been reorganizing for the last 50 to 100 years into something it may never have been. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, and again, how do you deal with that? If you're a wildlife manager, I don't know. It just sort of throws a lot of, but it's one of those, we probably need to think about it. Yeah. My operating idea, instead of trying to pin it to a certain year, I just like to operate on, um, I would like to see more wildlife tomorrow in more places than we have it today. Uh-huh. And in better condition. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, yeah. I, I'm not going to attempt to tie it to what I'm trying to match. Uh-huh. I just want, I can tell you one thing, I'd like more of it uh -huh. in more places. Yeah. And we certainly don't want to see it decline. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on, man. This has been great. Oh, thank you. This has been fun. Thank you. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are 
and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.